You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more information on how to build optimal mental and physical performance into your life, go to naturalstacks.com. Oh, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McCormick, and it is my goal to bring to you the best information possible to help you live better and more optimal. It is my purpose in life to elevate consciousness to try to make this world a better place. And it's a lofty goal, and I try to do it in various ways. Life coaching, performance coaching, go to my website, seanmccormick.com, to learn about what it is that I do. But on today's episode, we're joined by Mike Mutzel. And Mike Mutzel, you can find him on his YouTube channel, which has something like 300,000 subscribers. He's the author of The Belly Fat Effect, The Real Secret About How Your Diet, Intestinal Health, and Gut Bacteria Help You Burn Fat. He does health workshops, and he is really a, an authority on fasting and nutrition and how to get the most out of what you eat. Uh, this is a really great conversation. There's so much amazing content in here and lots and lots of takeaways. In this episode, we cover uh, breath work before pizza and beer, the must-track biomarkers for performance, why we should eat local and seasonal, uh, and, and how our bodies are attuned to seasonal changes, what is metabolic debt, the data on growth rates for kids with keto, uh, why you should fast before flying and traveling, fasting for curing cancer for uh, during cancer treatments. Uh, we talk about sirtuins and, and fasting protocols. Um, we mention how when you're fat adapted, you have less oxidative stress and you're more able to effectively battle environmental factors. This is packed with usable information, ideas, and really the cool part is that it's steeped in provable, effective, reliable science. And uh, Mike is truly an expert. He lives by this, and um, his podcast is is pretty in, incredible. Highintensityhealth.com is where you can find more about him. I really enjoyed this conversation because it it details out some of the things that a lot of you guys are probably already doing, which is eating within a window or one meal a day or eating for ketosis. He talks about how he tracks his different biomarkers like HRV and sleep. Some of you, I'm sure, are doing that as well. Something I definitely need to get better at because I do not know my baselines. But this is a really cool conversation. It's uh, it's usually I would say you know speed these episodes up so that you can consume them faster. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't speed it up too much because he packs a lot of information into each one of his replies. I know that you're going to enjoy this episode. Please. You know, I say this every time, but I mean it every time. If you would do me a huge favor, if you listen to this every single week, please subscribe. Just drop down, press the subscribe button so that you get an alert when we when we launch new episodes. And if you would, if you like this podcast, if you like listening to the guests that I bring every single week, give us a review on iTunes. Um, just that little short thing, maybe one sentence, Just it, it's immensely important for the success of this podcast, which... Um, a lot of you have been listening to for years and years and don't miss an episode. If you're one of those people, drop me a line, sean at seanmccormick.com or sean at naturalstacks.com. And if you're one of those people, share these episodes with your friends and family. Uh, I certainly do when I have a guest that I think really resonates with, with someone in my life or could really help them out. I make sure to forward it over um, right when it's posted so that they could share in this wisdom. I'm really excited to bring you today's guest. So without further blah blah, blah <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Mike Mutzel. You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast, and I'm your host, Sean McCormick. It's the OPP. I'm a performance coach, a wellness entrepreneur, a blogger, a speaker, a biohacker, and it's my privilege to bring to you the leading experts in the field of performance. So let's dig right in. And we're here with Mike Mutzel, a.k.a. Metabolic Mike, uh, who is the founder of High Intensity Health, and you can find him on Instagram and YouTube and just about everywhere. Mike, welcome to the Optimal Performance Podcast. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. One question that I like to lead with uh, for those in the wellness and on performance uh, arenas is what time is it where you are and what have you put into your body today? 
Ooh, really good question. So yeah, I have to look at my phone and see how it's one fifty Pacific Standard Time. So uh yeah, so I was filming videos today, and, and anytime I do a podcast like this, um, I usually fast. And so the only things that I've had, I had a uh, double espresso this morning to kickstart the day, no MCT, no nothing. Um, and then about two and a half hours later, so I was at like 5.45 in the morning, after I did uh, a little sauna, a little uh, mountain bike ride and all that, I had a fatty coffee. Um, so I do a little liquid MCT uh, oil and then just a little bit of butter and, uh, it, you know, in a pour over style coffee. And that's been, that's been it. See, my wife did make, uh, cause I, I trained pretty hard the last few days. So my wife made this amazing dessert last night with some uh, grass fed by protein and collagen and, uh, chocolate powder and, and what else there was a little avocado and like uh, coconut milk in there. And there was just a little bit in there calling my name in the fridge at around 1130. I'm like, ah, whatever. So anyway, I had that. So that was pretty much it. So, um, yeah, you know, and this is a great, great question, Sean, because so many people get kind of caught up on, well, does this break my fast or not? Like, it, you know, if I have a little butter, is it going to just like totally slam the brakes on autophagy and all these health benefits I'm trying to get from fasting? And we need to realize that just straight up you know, a mild calorie restriction, you know, just having low energy does initiate autophagy and does keep insulin low. And, and so uh, I do kind of poke fun at calorie counters on Instagram and Facebook and stuff, you know, because I think that people can be very dogmatic. But, you know, there is something to be said about just having low energy days. And, you know, so I've probably had at most 350, 400 calories per day. And, you know, if you look at some of the alternate day fasting studies or even the intermittent, intermittent fasting studies, they do allow people some calories. So, um, yeah, because I was active, I, you know, I, I, you know, some days, you know, I did do a 36 hour fast earlier this week. Um, and I'll have a big dinner tonight. Uh, you know, it wasn't the, one of these days where, um, I'm concerned about being strict zero energy altogether, you know, again, um, I'm sure we'll talk more about it, but because I do exercise a lot, I don't need to be as strict about um, f how aggressive I, I am with fasting. Uh, the fasting aggressiveness really kind of depends upon, you know, your your metabolic history and how metabolically flexible you are. And, and a lot of people that are physically fit and active, they have a little bit more leeway when it comes to um, how how aggressive or not so aggressive their fast can be. And so anyway, that's just kind of a, a thing. But you know, to, to summarize, you know, real quick, I found we just got back from Santiago, Chile, um, you know, late Sunday. And it was a great break in the routine. I think traveling is amazing for people because for for years I've done MCT and, and butter in my coffee like first thing in the morning and and so um, we got into this espresso habit because they don't have like drip coffee, you know, in South America. It's like you get an espresso, a single or a double. That was pretty much it. Um, and that was nice to just because it's nice to get the caffeine in the morning. But it was like, oh, man, I got to do like all this liquid fat. And like I just it became this routine. And so it's really nice now. It's like I don't have very any calories until um, after I walk my daughter to school, you know, and I make like a little bit of a, a bulletproof coffee now. So um, I think it's it's good to just everyone's a little bit different. Um, but the espresso, I'm, I'm digging that in the morning because then you're really making ketones, your liver's kicking it up without having any exogenous fuel. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. Just mix, mixing it up, doing any one thing for any long period of time, unless it's treating some sort of like gut issue or metabolic breakdown, makes a lot of sense. Did you do you take any supplements in the morning? Do you take a handful of pills or anything? Yeah, it really depends on the day. I'm pretty big. Um, I love my DHEA, so I'll do 50 milligrams of DHEA. Um, I have an adrenal thyroid glandular that I'll take in the morning. Uh, but that's pretty much it. Yeah, I, I don't, and I go back and forth. I mean, sometimes I do adaptogens, you know, ashwagandha, rhodiola, shisandra, things like that. So it really depends. But those are kind of the most of the supplements that I take. Um, you know, sometimes I'll take carnitine, acetylcarnitine, you know, nootropics, things like that. It, it really kind of depends. Um, but I'm pretty adamant, like when I travel or, you know, I went on a backcountry hunt 10 days out in the woods. Um, the only thing I took were like my DHA and adrenal, uh, glandular in the morning. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what I take, but I'm, I'm kind of interested now with this whole, all the, these, um, you know, NAD boosters and things I'm kind of interested about, like, can I do with this? You know, because in the supplement space, I mean, you know, this, there's, there's raw materials and there's patented raw materials that have like, 
you know, for example, resveratrol was super expensive for a long time. And now like, you know, NR and MNM are, you know, are very expensive. There's one, one raw material vendor. So I'm trying to think about like, can I get that same effect by just taking maybe tryptophan at night and maybe nicotinic acid or niacin in the morning, you know, or can it, instead of having to pay $200 a month retail for these things. So, um, yeah, I'm just kind of experimenting now with like some uh, tryptophan at night to kind of kickstart NAD or at least provide flood the body with maybe tryptophan precursors to help out, you know, this critical intracellular signaling molecule. So, yeah, um, supplements are I mean, I've been selling supplements actually since 2006. And uh, in college, I worked at different vitamin stores and all that. So supplements are definitely a big part of what I do as well. Is it the type of thing that you're so dialed that you can kind of sense like, oh, I do have a bit more energy and I've isolated that and, and you know, it's nine o'clock at night and I, and I feel motivated to do some work or make a move on my wife or, you know, like those little things kind of go off and you realize that, okay, maybe it is working to help that the, the same effects that you would get from like a true niogen or an NR supplement or, or an NAD drip, something like that. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I, I love the biomarkers that I try to, I mean, the feelings I think are super important as well. Um, but I would look more at like heart rate variability, sleep architecture, um, kind of like subjective feelings upon awakening, you know, dream recall. So that's that kind of the direction that I would, I would go for it. Cause I, th I feel like energy is, and subjective energy is kind of fleeting, you know, and it's like, yeah, you can just have a, a positive thought or, or just, you know, you can reframe your mind and, and think that, wow, I have my, way more energy today than I did yesterday. We're just being optimistic. So I like to look for more things that are, are objective. And, and so I do use Aura Ring, um, first morning heart rate variability using the Elite HRV. It's a, another direct response heart rate variability testing. Um, and, and different ketone and glucose, you know, I go off and on with a continuous glucose monitor. So that's pretty uh, insightful. But yeah, if you, you know, for NR in particular, or looking at NAD overall metabolism, um, even some of the clinical studies, if you look at NR or NMN, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of objective changes that you could see even in performance outcomes and things like that. But I feel like that doesn't mean to me that it's, those things are not working necessarily, but it's just, it's, it's kind of like if you were to take a supplement to enhance autophagy and try to look at maybe glucose or triglycerides or LDL and HDL, like you're not really going to see major shifts because these are intracellular phenomenons that are hard to test. And so what I would, you know, and I'm curious about doing, and, and I just ordered the kit for uh, the MyDNH test. It's a company in LA. And so they're looking at epigenetic, your kind of chronological age. That's a little bit more sensitive than like even critically short telomere testing. So mm. For me, that's what I'm kind of curious. I'm not going to, I haven't, you know, bit the bullet on, on, um, NR and NMN, uh, supplements just cause they're super expensive and I've been on the supplement business. I can get everything at retail or cost. So I'm like, why am I going to spend 200 bucks a month when I know this stuff costs, you know, what it costs to make it right. Yeah. Uh, it's just kind of where I'm coming from. But, um, yeah. So anyway, long story short is what I want to do this epigenetic testing and then bite the bullet and pay retail for maybe 90 days on these supplements and then retest just to see, because I feel like something like that, like a more molecular analysis at, you know, in an ideal world, we would have proteomics and metabolomics, and we can look at our blood and look mm. at different metabolite testing. But to see a small change in triglycerides or HDL, and then to make inferences on that, to me, it's not it's not a big game changer, right? Um, and and so if you look at these studies, you know, yeah, they'll look at standard labs like that, maybe, but then they'll also look at microRNA changes in muscle biopsies or different metabolites. And so, um, yeah, so, so anyway, that, that's, that's what I try to use. But for people that are listening, they're like, okay, like, we're not going to get there. What else can I test outside of subjective feelings? Um, I think heart rate variability and dream recall, uh, blood glucose fasted in the morning, stuff like that is good. Um, there's also this spreadsheet that I use. Daniel Goldman has this book called Triggers. And he has these nightly questions that he recommends. And so I have been doing this for a couple of years now. And uh, it, it's just basically these questions that CEOs and executives and high performing people would ask themselves. And so they rate themselves at the end of every day. And one of those is like, how was my energy today? Um, and then did I do my best to bring energy? Because 
you know, part of this I've realized is if I go into a meeting, for example, I used to be in sales. Um, I needed to bring that energy. It wasn't like this, there's this energy, it's not innate. Like high energy people, Tony Robbins, like they they create the energy. Like before they get on stage, they'll do push-ups and squats and jumps and like get fired up, you know? And so um, part of this feeling of like, oh, I'm tired today, it's like, well, are you really tired or are you doing everything in your power to like bring it, right? And so, um, yeah, I think the nightly questions in addition to objective biomarkers can be helpful. So you can just, buy the book triggers or get on audible and he'll walk you through. And so I have this spreadsheet I go through. So uh, anyway, we're, we're getting off topic here, but I think it, you know, you bring up a great point is we should be tracking. We should be tracking things. A lot of people make all these changes at once. They go to the gym, they start fasting, they're eating a low carb ketogenic style diet. And, and you're like, well, okay, did you do blood work before? No, I just changed. Do you have a DEXA? Do you have anything to go off? Because it's it's really hard. And doctors would tell me this with their patients. You know, look, it's very important that we get a baseline because these changes are subtle. And if you, you might at the end of six months go, this, this diet didn't do anything for me. And you're like, well, actually, your body fat has changed five percentage points. You're like, but it's it's subtle every day because you live with you see yourself in the mirror every day. These subtle changes, you know. So I think it's important. People take selfies, take a picture in the mirror, do do anything, and like keep a little record. So, um, you know, when you're changing these things, you realize like what's working and what's not. That that's that's definitely one of my weaknesses is is tracking, and and I, I don't know what my resistance is to it. You know, um, but it sounds like heart rate variability, um, some sort of sleep tracking. Um, uh, blood glucose or ketones, um, and then the sort of the the daily subjective self assessment for how you felt, and then dream recall. Uh, it, it, what about dream recall is important? Yeah, I you know besides being awesome I'm, and important. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, from a Freudian and Jungian sense, I mean, I, I'm into it. But but how how does that how how does that have an effect on how our brain works or how our body is functioning? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I'm not a sleep expert, but I, I think it's a nice proxy for your REM stages yeah. and 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 the appropriate um, you know sleep cycles and, and going through this the appropriate sleep stages. So. Now, that being said, I mean, you, you could probably, you know, drink a bunch of wine before bed and have a terrible night's sleep and, and remember some of your dreams. And then if you look on a polysomnography, you're like, well, you slept like crap. You're like, well, no, I, I actually slept good because I can remember my dreams. So I, it's a little subjective, but sure. I, I feel like if you talk to people that have sleep apnea or sleep disorder breathing, they're like, I haven't remembered my dream in six months, a year. I don't know when the last time I remembered a dream. So I think it's a nice, again, it's a little proxy. So, um, yeah, and, and that's happened for me. You know, in in Chile, um, wine is big down there. So there were some late nights with some wine, and I remember waking up going, "I do not remember my dream at all. I had a very dry mouth. I was mouth breathing. All that." So, yeah, I think it's a loose approximation for how qualitative, how how uh, the quality of your sleep. That's cool, though. I, I like it. It's a it's a good point. Okay, I'm gonna yeah. we're gonna we're gonna jump all around, and I know that you're game for it because I have. I mean, if you could see the notes I have, they're they're <laughs> all over. It's a smattering. Um, one thing that you said uh, was talking about ketosis for protection of stress responses from en environmental stressors, and you you sort of said it really quickly. But it's not something that I had really thought much about. The fact that with intermittent fasting or or being in ketosis and eating in a ketogenic way, that that somehow protects us from environmental stressors and factors. Can you talk a little bit about what you meant by that? Yeah, that's an awesome point. I, I think in the context that I was talking about that, and I don't remember exactly which video or where I said this. Tom, Tom Bilyeu. Oh, Tom Bilyeu's. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, – it's just part of it is heart rate variability that, that we were speaking of. And then the other part about it would be um, kind of the NAD metabolism and, and kind of stress response protein. So maybe we can talk about heart rate variability first. And um, so if we think about our body's autonomic nervous system response, you know, we have this fight or flight stress response. It's really people in the Seattle area, which both of us live, you know, uh, people are on high. There's a lot of stress. You know, there's a lot of people, um, you know, burning the candle at both ends or driving their cars or stuck in traffic. They're irritated. 
they're annoyed, you know, their resiliency is um, really diminished. And so if you think about just like the smallest thing, I mean, you know, trying to merge into traffic, they're going to get freaked out, honk you and flip you off. You're like, dude, you have like no resilience. Right. And so so that is a, a kind of a, a loose approximation for um, gosh, they, they, they couldn't tolerate much. Whereas if an individual had just maybe gone from like a Bikram yoga class or an exercise fitness class where they've been fasting, you know, their heart rate variability and their, their parasympathetic branch of their nervous system is going to be more stimulated. They're going to be like, Hey, come on in. It's okay. Like they, they can handle deadlines and, and stressors. And so there's more resilience built in. And so this is what's really kind of interesting about the ketogenic diet is and eating fats in general, um, they affect this cholinergic autonomic kind of anti-inflammatory reflex arc that a lot of people don't know about, but it's it's kind of well elucidated in the autoimmune research and, and different um, kind of, you know, for example, there's there's different ways to stimulate the cholinergic, cholinergic system uh, in individuals that have autoimmune disease and other inflammatory diseases, and it downregulates the inflammatory response. And this may be why people smoke cigarettes, because nicotine does affect the system. And, you know, they do kind of get this sense of, although there's a bunch of other competing chemicals probably in tobacco and nicotine uh, or cigarettes rather. Um, but it, but it does affect, um, there's science here with this cholinergic, cholinergic stimulation. So that's part one. Part two is, you know, when researchers kind of have talked about, you know, if we, if we take maybe if we ingest two equal diets, one is 2,500 calories, you know, but one's more high in carbohydrates. Another one is low in carbohydrates, high in fat. We're going to get different levels of intracellular metabolites and cofactors, one of it, one of which is NAD. And we kind of alluded to the varying supplements out there that support this nicotine, adenine, dinucleotide. It's a little cofactor involved in in not only uh, basic carbohydrate fat metabolism and mitochondrial respiration and all these things, but NAD is an important critical cofactor for these enzymes called sirtuins, which are intimately involved in longevity and um, in, involved in stress response pathways and protecting DNA, enhancing DNA stability, um, uh, affecting mitochondrial metabolism. So. I know we're getting into the, the weeds a little bit, but but what I want people to kind of understand here is when you're in a fat-adapted phenotype, meaning that you're able to um, maybe eat just one meal a day and not crumble apart, right, can have a lot of hypoglycemic symptoms, um, from, a, from a metabolic standpoint, you're stimulating a lot of stress response proteins that are associated with longevity, and you have less oxidative stress, and you're better able to buffer uh, free radical and uh, other challenges uh, in your environment. And so that's kind of part of the part of the thing that I've figured out. So, you know, let's just make a very simple or practical uh, situation. Uh, you're traveling, for example, on an airplane, you're going through air, you know, TSA security, whether you opt out for the high EMF, whatever, you know, sensor, or you get an x-ray, either way, it's probably not ideal. You're still getting, um, you know, your DNA is getting a little exposure, then you're at 45,000 feet in the air, there's a lot of ionizing radiation, you're in this tube, there's Wi Fi, there's a lot of, you know, bad air, you know, as much as we love to travel, um, it can be relatively unhealthy. And so what I recommend people do, and this is what I do is fast for like 18 to 20 hours before I fly. And that's going to give your body, you know, it's going to tinker and test and kind of find, you know, get the dial on the, um, you know, your, your longevity thermostat kind of cranked up so that your body can mitigate some of these buffers and these insults that are being, you're going to be exposed to. Or for example, let's say you need to get a CT scan. There's a lot of radiation exposure with a CT scan or a chest x-ray, for example, mm. that's a great situation. Or if someone is going to get radiation for a cancer or a tumor, and there's good research here to support that the radiation is more effective if people are keto or they fast beforehand. And so what you're doing is you're kind of weakening the weaker cells and you're strengthening the stronger cells by, by with food deprivation. And, you know, through the, the metabolomics, if you will, and these, these different, you know, enzymatic pathways, you're creating more cellular NAD, which helps to uh, give, you know, you know, the sirtuin enzymes, which are intimately involved in longevity and mitochondrial metabolism, require this cofactor called NAD. And uh, which, by the way, if you if you are, are eating a lot of carbohydrates, you're going to de deplete your 
carbohydrate breakdown, not that carbs are bad. I do carb cycling often, but when you eat a lot of carbs, basically you're depleting your NAD pool faster compared to if you ate the same quantity of calories from fats, just by virtue of how these things are metabolized from either glycolysis in the context of carbohydrate metabolism or beta oxidation in the context of fatty acid metabolism, um, glycolysis just you know, chips through a lot more NAD as a cofactor. So yeah, I think that was the context in, in Tom Bilyeu's podcast that I was referring to. And I just noticed just anecdotally working with people, you know, in a sales position, managing territories and, and all this, um, I've noticed people that just lack resilience generally are like these carbohydrate junkies. They have to eat every two to three hours and you know, they're, they have some metabolic inflexibility and you're like, they freak out about non-issues and just overreact and you're like, wow, do you, they could just see themselves um, through the vantage point of someone who's more calm and resilient and, you know, and I'm not sitting here saying if you go keto, you're going to turn into a monk, you know, necessarily, but, <laughs> but I found, right, that a lot of people that, um, that get into this, I mean, I used to just be a super uptight, stressed out. I was that guy on the freeway honking and flipping people off and all that stuff and man, it's like, I, I'm not that way at all. I mean, I've changed a million and one things. I'm sleeping better. I'm, I'm meditating now. I'm doing this. But I think a big part of it is just my diet. So my threshold to tolerate stress, um, you know, maybe it's environmental toxins, but also just environmental stimulation is enhanced. So yeah. I think there's, there's a lot to be said about that. That's great. That's a really great explanation. When you travel, just because I'm curious, because I know that there's a lot of um, parents who listen to this podcast, when you're traveling with your seven-year-old, do you encourage her to eat a little bit less before a flight? Do you do you sort of like carefully offer fewer snacks? And if you do, it's like a carrot, like because I I need some tools because I'm yeah. going with my family and and I you know I limit I try to limit food intake when they're having a cold and it's cold season here in the Pacific Northwest so. Um, how do you, how do you navigate that with your, with your kid? Oh, it's an amazing question. Yeah. I love these practical things that can help people. Um, I, I would just be a little bit more strict, low carb, you know, it's hard. I mean, I, you know, the data on fasting and children, probably not so good. Even, even growth rates, linear growth rates, uh, in, in kids that have been on a ketogenic diet for epilepsy is not it. They don't generally grow at the same rate as ah. individuals that, so yeah, so there, so we, but, but for traveling and just for sense of mental well-being too, as a yeah. parent, right, you got to live with your kid. You know, if your kid is, is, is having these glycemic, a lot of glycemic variability, they're going to have a lot of, you know, various neurotransmitter, um, you know, fluctuations and mood fluctuations. I think a lot of people don't make that correlation between what I feed my child and my child's behavior, but there is a big correlation there. And it's, it, it's because, you know, uh, neurotransmission and, and, you know, levels of neurotransmitters is influenced by metabolism. And so if there's a lot of volatility in, in metabolism, high energy, low energy, high glucose, low glucose from eating carbs and processed carbs mostly, then there's going to be a, a volatility in the neurotransmitter. So yeah, it would be something like, okay, we're going to do a salted avocado. So I bring Redmond real salt and avocado. My wife makes a lot of like sprouted um, and soaked nuts and seeds in the dehydrator, things like that. She used to be a raw vegan way, way back in the day. So we still do some of that. So Traveling would just be like, look, we're not going to do – not that we do a lot of carbs, but it's not going to be like, oh, here's a banana or an apple. It's going to be like a lot more fat-based. So it's just going to make every – first of all, she's going to feel more satiated because fats are inherently satiating. We're not going to eat food at the airport. Um, it's going to make life easy. Yeah, I. so that's the thing. And I, with travel especially, like you got to be mentally prepared ahead of time because if you just think, oh, I'll just get something at the airport, it's going to be garbage food. You're going to yeah. be disappointed and you're going to be hungry and be like, oh, everyone else is eating this, so I'm just going to eat this anyway. <laughs> and so you just got to be prepared when you travel. So no uh, no juice boxes or Capri Suns and bagels before you jump onto the airplane. Oh, man, that's a recipe for just a nightmare, right? I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, well, let's 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 jump back to fasting. Um, I, I, I know it, you talk about it a lot, and I know that there are lots of different reasons why. I am longevity, resilience, all those, all those reasons. Um, I, I've heard you talk a little bit about what is likely a good sort of rhythm, you know, um, um, eating within a window. Uh, is one, maybe one part of that. And 
um, you know, a 24-hour fast once a week, um, a two- or three-day fast once a quarter. Can you walk us through why that is? And the second part of that question is if you're eating, if you're intermittent fasting and you're eating within a window, which I, I myself do, why is it important to stay consistent within that window? Those mm. two parts. Amazing. Yeah. I love those the details here. Um, well, I mean, first of all, like uh, it, it's hard to prescribe uh, a particular, you know, the the ideal fasting remedy for everyone. And I, I frequently make this this parallel, you know, um, everyone has if you call a financial planner and you say, hey, look, you know, when, when I'm six years old, I want to have two million dollars in the bank. I want to be debt free, et cetera. So they're going to ask you a series of questions, you know, like how much debt do you have, what's your income, how many kids you have and all that. And so I think a lot of us, what we need to do is take like a, a metabolic inventory of like how long have I been eating crappy food? How long have I been exercising or not exercising? Um, how long have I been eating every two to three hours or you know, some people inherently are like, I'm not a breakfast person, so I never really ate breakfast. So this whole intermittent fasting thing is nothing new to me. I've been doing it. And so I think that the longer that you've been experiencing, quote unquote, metabolic debt, and that would be eating every two to three hours, you know, never fasting, never exercising, that means that you need to do a little bit more uh, to be a little bit more intense with this. And so what that could be is instead of maybe doing like fasting for 12 hours a day, you can maybe fast for 18 to 20 hours a day, or maybe you just do one meal a day. You might need to do prolonged fasts. And so, so anyway, there's all... But I'll, I'll talk about prolonged fasting in a minute, but just want to define and characterize this intermittent fasting umbrella. So underneath the intermittent fasting umbrella, we have the most extreme, which would be eating one meal a day. So you're essentially fasting for anywhere between 22 and 23 hours a day. You're eating in that small window. And then we open it up into what we call 16-8, where you're fasting for 16 hours, eating for an eight-hour window. And uh, un- underneath this umbrella, too, we have this element of time-restricted feeding, which we'll get into part two of your question, which is, it's not only just about you know the, the duration of time that you go between meals, but it's the time at which you end and start your feeding. And I'm very biased. Uh, you know, back in 2014, I wrote this book called The Belly Fed Effect, and for five years up to that, I was just like so myopically focused in the circadian biology research. And we know now that you know we have these peripheral influences of our circadian clock system. It used to be thought that. Well, it's only light and darkness that affects circadian rhythms, but well, we now know that when we eat or when we fast influences these circadian clocks, um, you know, because there's molecular clocks inside our GI tract and our liver and our kidneys and all that. So I'm a huge fan of not only going for a long period of time between major meals, you know, for example, maybe eating one or two meals a day, compressing that feeding window anywhere from on the broad side to 10 hours, on the narrow side, you know, compressing that feeding window down to say four hours. I think that everyone should be doing that. Uh, a lot of animals naturally do that. Ancestral humans do that. You know, we, we, we would naturally do that. And it's part of our, uh, it's part of humanity that, and unfortunately many people don't do that. Um, but I'm also a fan of, of considering the time of the day when you do, when you break your fast or when you start eating. And so, um, for most people, that's during daylight hours. I just make a very simple uh, look. You know, most animals outside of you know animals that are like nocturnal type predator animals eat during the day. And as humans, you know, we we don't have night vision. Uh, we don't have all these you know uh, things to keep us protected. So we're not out foraging for food and getting corn and stuff like that. You know, in the fields uh, at, at midnight. You know, like people are doing eating pizza at midnight. Now it's usually during the daytime because we have really good vision as humans and we can see changes. And so we we need to be able to see predators and and uh, to protect ourselves. That's really all we have, um, and the ability to outsmart animals. So. Um, I think we should be eating during daylight hours and the earlier, in my opinion, the earlier, the better. So long as you have self-control, meaning if you're going to do say a six hour window, if you can say eat from 12 to six and you have the willpower, the self-control to cut it off at six truly, because some people, once they start eating, it's like the floodgates are open and and it's hard for them to stop, you know? And so I'm all in favor of early time restricted feeding only for those individuals that have the willpower to cut it off. If you and I, you know, look, I'm one of these people. I love, you know, 
I'll have like a dried mango for dessert or blueberries or whatever. So like for me, sometimes it's, it, it, it's hard to cut it off. And so I just need to be very vigilant about that. And then I'll use things like the zero app or something to just say, Hey, this is it. This is my last bite. Boom, turn it on. And then there's enough pride that I'm like, well, I started my fast. I can't have anything else. Right. So I think having these hard start stops are important. But for other people that they don't have children, they're retired, they're widowed, they're single, then if you could just do your one meal a day or, or compress your window, I would say but anywhere say as early as 11 a.m., as late as say 4 p.m., like somewhere in there, there's a lot of good data showing that from a, from a gastric secretion standpoint, from bile acid release, from hydrochloric acid release from the stomach, like the our digestive tract is really primed to start breaking down food like in the in the middle part of the day. Leptin is usually at its lowest point, which means we're most hungry. Uh, you know, anywhere, again, between, it's a little individual, but 11 to four or something like that. But really what we're seeing on a societal level is people are not having major meals until it's after dark, it's 7, 8 p.m. And as much as I love South American culture, we didn't start eating till 9 p.m. It was really kind of crazy for us. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. People go to dinner at like 8, 8.30, <laughs> man. Like, and you see people in their 70s just rocking it, having wine at dinner at midnight. You're like, it's crazy. But it's like, you know what? Okay. So in that situation, it's like you're pushing everything later. Yeah. Because part of it, I was thinking, gosh, and these people were lean. They didn't have overt diabetes or obesity and that I could see, you know, um, but they're so social, right? So they're eating mindfully, they're chewing their food, they're like conversating, it's part of their culture. So it's like, for them, it's like, okay, you're definitely not doing your bulletproof coffee in the morning, just have a little espresso. You don't, you need really anything until 2, 3 p.m. Like don't don't even think about food until like the afternoon, right? So just push everything out. And, but, tr you know, meeting people where they're at, like trying to convince someone that lives in Latin America to do early time restricted feeding is just stupid, right? It just yeah. doesn't make any sense. And so, uh, but it was interesting to see, like every culture is a little bit different and maybe their, all their strong social connections is kind of outweighing this yeah. circadian rhythm perturbation. So totally. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's a good, I think that's a really good point. And I think that we can, we, in Western culture can be sort of ethnocentric about, about the way, about the way to eat. But there are the French, uh, who eat, uh, rich breads and, and smoke cigarettes and they stay lean. And, and there's probably a lot of factors why the French, um, um, stay lean and live long and are active people. Cause the, the grains that they're using in their breads aren't, you know, cyborg grains, you know, Frankenstein grains. They're, they're sort of older, older grains and, and the wine is helping them, you know, uh, with vasodilation and they're talking and they're walking and there's, you know, I don't know. I, I think it's, I think it's a good point to make and plus live your life, you know, go, go fuck around, go have some fun, stay up late, drink wine, get in trouble. Like get, don't, don't be so dogmatic. Uh, don't, don't cry while you're eating that cupcake at the birthday party. Like just eat it and enjoy it. And like, and, 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 I don't know if there's research to support this, but I've heard that 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 emotional state while you're consuming that food has a lot to do with what it does in your body. If you're freaking out while you're eating donuts on a Saturday morning with, you know, your cousins or something because it's a celebration or you're going for a walk and you do it every once in a while and you're just like being there and it's okay and you're not stressing out, it's probably not going to fuck you up as bad, right? hundred percent. Well, and I think in our culture, right, we, we don't have these social connections. We don't, we're not really connected as people. We're very isolated. So that's where, yeah, maybe you really have to be so strict with your feeding window and, and all this because, you know, you know, it's looking at the piece of the puzzle. And so a financial planner might say, or a metabolic planner might say, well, how are your social connections? Like if you don't have any, if you're eating by yourself, then yeah, maybe you got to be like a Nazi, like with your diet and your feeding window. Right. But it's like, yeah, you, you, like you said, you, you go to Europe and you see these people smoking, drinking all this. You're like, how, how are you even alive? Right. Because if, if, <laughs> if you were in a, a different culture, you, you'd have all these health, health issues. So yeah, I think 
which makes me realize that like we, we do place a huge emphasis on nutrition and we talk all day about nutrition and biochemistry and all that. And it's important, but you're like, well, how important is it really compared to some of the other factors? Because some of the people that I know that are super gregarious and outgoing and very social, they eat like crap, man. But you look at them and they look pretty darn healthy. Their brain is working good. I, I haven't seen their blood work necessarily in all cases, but you know, anyway, so it's, it's kind of funny that, um, I don't know. I, and I would, I tell my clients this too. I mean, I have some clients who are just so picky about their food. Um, you know, one individual was like living, um, you know, this, basically this outpatient hospital center, like had a private chef, grass fed organic, this and that. But I could just tell in her voice, like something was off. Mm. And, and I just said to her, you know, when was the last time you had a hug or went on a date? And she was super quiet and started crying. Mm. So I'm like, look, you know what? I, I'm going to tell you like, okay, you're, you're, you're grass-fed beef from cows that have had filtered water and all that stuff. Amazing, right? But I, I want you to just go on Tinder, go on a date, man. Go Get out. Like, yeah. you know, break. So again, you know, nutrition important, but there's other things like – and it has to, it sounds foo-foo, but this whole field of psychoneuroimmunology and psychoneuroimmune endocrinology. So your thoughts influence your whole metabolism and neuroendocrine system. And so, you know, if you're constantly worried or isolated or this, like, yeah, you can be eating the best food in the world, but what is that sending to your, your yeah. genes? What sort of messages are you sending? Yeah. If you're lonely and stressed, you could be eating the really the best food in the whole world. But if there's no love in your life, like you're, it's, you're behind the eight ball a little bit. I want to go back to the concept of of sort of the geographic. Uh, maybe there's no connection. Rough transition, Sean. Um, I've heard you talk about eating locally um, and eating seasonally. Um, you know, there's there's good science to support that you should be eating foods that are in season. That's why we shouldn't be eating fruit all year long because uh, in the Pacific Northwest there's for uh, for you and I there there is no fruit and all of our fruit does come from chili so why you know why should we be eating um that sort of stuff and and my question for you is um obviously there's a there's an economic uh an ethical sort of imperative with eating eating from the farmers market from the the farm down the street it's local it's it's fresher it's has a smaller carbon footprint but one thing that I think about is, you know, if you're in if you're in the Pacific Northwest, but your genetics are um, Latino um, or African, um, does that does that still uh, does that still apply, or or doesn't matter where you're from, you should be eating locally and seasonally because your body is sort of adapting to the environment that you're in, and your circadian rhythm has its own sort of uh, influence on the, on that concept? Mm, brilliant question. Gosh, yeah, I've thought about this too. Um, I, I can't point to any randomized placebo controlled studies for this. So we're kind of extrapolating from what we see in hibernating animals, for example, um, and, and looking at, you know, what, what they do in the winter, uh, versus the summer and their microbiome changes. There's a lot of metabolic changes that occur. And so presumably that, that does, and we know that happens, uh, in humans. Um, even if we look at the, the incidence of, of various diseases, um, for example, the, the death rate from a heart attack is like higher, uh, in the winter for, for some reason. Right. So yeah, I think there's a lot to be said there. And there was one study that was looking at, uh, mice and they actually gave them, I don't know how the mice knew it was winter or not, but, but anyway, they, 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 you know, had some mice that were acclimated to the seasons and, and what they did is they gave them food that was characteristically, characteristically out of season. Uh, and it was an orange juice and some more fruit based and, what they saw is there was a disproportionate metabolic response compared to if they gave the the animals that same macronutrient meal in a different season. So, you know, yeah, what what are the mechanisms at play here? What's what's going on? Is it genetics? Is it microbiome? Is it hormones? Is it circadian rhythm? Light exposure? I think it's probably a combination of all those different things. And I think this is an important conversation depending upon who hears it. For example. 
Sally Smith, who's going to Costco, has three kids and they're just trying to get one foot in front of the other. And they're like, well, now you tell me blueberries are bad for me. I'm just like, well, we're not saying that, but it's like blueberries are better than, you know, pancakes and bagels. But, it, you know, once you get to a certain level and you're trying to fine tune, then we need to say, OK, well, yeah, blueberries are better than bread. But like, do we need blueberries on Christmas Day? But probably not. Right. Even if they're organic and all this. So. I, I think it, it really depends on where people are at and if they're fine tuning. And, you know, I have friends who are me very metabolically flexible that lift weights and they like to have like a post-workout smoothie. And so it's a replenished glycogen and stuff like that. And, you know, is it ideal for them to be having blueberries in November and February? Probably not ideal, but, you know, is it really harming them either? I don't, I don't know, uh, you know, but so I think if you're trying to split hairs, like, yeah, try to live like your ancestors would live and imagine that you're living in a, in your environment like 200 years ago. So you would have preserved fruit, you know, you'd have jams that you made from the summer, you know, things like that. And, and so we do our best in our house to, to live like that. Um, albeit it's, it's challenging. It's a lot of work. Um, but generally we feel better and, and stuff like that. So that's just what we do now. I, I'm not going to say we never buy blueberries in the winter. We'll buy frozen blueberries sometimes. My daughter loves them. Um, but, but it's not something that we have every day. It's more of like a treat. Mm -hmm. And so that's just kind of what we do. And we, we try to avoid things that are totally unnatural, flown in from Chile or who knows where, Colombia. Um, now, it sounds hypocr hypocritical that I'm saying this because coffee, which we have pretty much every damn day, uh, <laughs> coffee beans are not perennial. Like they uh, – there's right. a – so we need to kind of like – and I love chocolate too. I don't think you know cocoa trees produce chocolate every single day. Right. So um, – yeah. So again, I, I admittedly sound very hypocritical when I say this um, because there probably is a time of the year where there's coffee beans that are unavailable. But because of how we're able to manipulate pl plants and breed plants and ship stuff all over the place. Um, so, yeah, I, I just tell people, look, if things are not working, then even go to that next level and try the best that you possibly can to eat things that are in season in your environment. And yeah, I think genes are a big thing, but we know that as, as we're in an environment for an extended period of time, like we're going to be exposed to different microbes or microbiome might change due to the, you know, how much light there is, the intensity of the light. Like there's a lot of things we can't measure. So it's, I think it's important to consider for sure. Yeah. The, as with anything, um, there's no right answer. There's no clear cut. Like you should, you have to do this because everybody's different. Everybody lives different lives. They have different goals. Their gut is different. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, what are you, when it comes to longevity, um, you know, I, th I thought longevity was pot. I mean, I realize I'm in a bubble and so are you to a certain extent, like you and I are the fact that we're able to talk about this stuff in so much detail shows that we're, we exist within this, this sort of echo chamber a little bit when it comes to longevity, but, f but it does seem that, um, it's becoming more and more popular and there are some there are some proponents and some advocates of longevity and thinking about living a long time that are that are helping drive that uh, that narrative. How do you think about longevity? What are you taking? Um, how are you eating? How 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 do you think about the longevity goal? Um, because I, we've talked about fasting, we've talked about eating and metabolic fl uh, flexibility and, um, um, you know, ATP production and, and cellular health and mitochondrial health. But how do you think about longevity and, and what are you doing every day or what will you be doing in 20 years to help um, extend your lifespan? Mm. Yeah, I think on that last point, you hit on a great uh, point that we all should consider is you know, not really how long you're going to live, but but how the quality of your life and uh, kind of so-called compressing their morbidity curve. Because what what we're seeing with people is you know, the function and the quality of their life is 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 you know coming faster and faster, and it's declining faster and faster for them. And so you know they're starting to lose their memory in their 50s. They have no energy. They have no resilience. No tolerance for stress. Um, and so I definitely just don't want to be like that. You know, I've been around. You know, gosh, I've worked with a bunch of doctors all over the place. And, I, you know, some of the doctors that I've worked with that, 
you know, I've sat down with, they're in their 60s or their 70s, and, and they look amazing. I'm like, I want to be like that person. It's like, if they lived to 90, great. If they lived to 85, as long as the quality of their brain and their energy level is there, you know, uh, throughout their lifespan, I think that's what I what I strive for. But, you know, I know in our space and online, there's people saying, I want to live to 150. And, that, you know, it's like, I don't know if that's what, for what reason, most people, you know, would, will not be around you, you know, that, 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 you know, now at least. Um, so for me, it's just more about, um, preserving that healthy lifespan. And I think, you know, unarguably, you know, the, the factors that, that really, mitigate that or affect that or influence that, um, are having meaning and purpose. Most of all, like five years ago, I would have told you it's, it's all about oxidative stress. It's mitochondrial metabolism. It's this and that. I think all that stuff is very, very important. And we'll get into that. But I found, you know, some of the people that, um, preserve their mental capacities and mental faculties and have good energy, have some sort of greater meaning or purpose and are serving others in some fashion, whether that's volunteering in the church where they feel needed and they feel compelled and something is getting them out of bed. And, and they, you know, you talk to them on the phone or see them in person and they, they almost look like they haven't aged at all. So it's, for me, that's, that's, it's become more evident that that's an important factor. And that's kind of one of these things that's hard to teach or can't really take a supplement that's going to help you find more purpose. You can't really, <laughs> you can read a book, you know I mean? So I think that's super important. And that's where for me, like what I try to do is and why I'm, I have chickens and turkeys and I garden now is to help set myself up for, if that's all that if I'm retired in 70, I know that would at least give me enough purpose. You know, hopefully my daughter will have children or grandchildren or whatever. Like if nothing else, if all else goes to hell, uh, you know, I'll at least have that. And that would give me enough meaning and purpose to, to um, you know, to, to make it through the day. So I think, you know, a lot of us were just so disconnected from where our food comes from, from our environment. You know, that that's super important. Um, but getting into the nitty gritty stuff that people probably want to hear, I, I think the fasting element is super important. We know that as we age, autophagy levels naturally decline. It's just one of these things that we can all get excited about as we get older, we get more wrinkles, we get more gray hair and autophagy tends to take a nosedive. So how do we upregulate autophagy through a combination of fasting and exercise and maybe some foods that we can take? So, um, I get more and more aggressive with my fasting with time, but I also want to preserve lean muscle mass at the same time, because the other thing we can all get so excited about is losing more muscle as we age. So, um, you know, pulsing, you know, pulsing insulin, pulsing mTOR, pulsing protein, you know, not being, not being scared of protein, but just not chronically stimulating that growth axis through constantly having protein all the time and protein shakes and never going without protein, but having bolus meals and then having fasting after or going for 10, 12 hours with nothing. I think that is, is really important because you don't want to totally lose mTOR. If you, if you look at people that chronically take rapamycin, the, you know, the mTOR inhibitor, you know, they, they, they become sarcopenic and cachectic in, in some regards. So, um, we, we, we need some fluctuations and, you know, we've been talking about seasons. You would never want winter all the time, nor would you want summer all the time, right? Um, as you want some sort of variability. So as I age, you know, being a little bit more strict with that, um, you know, incorporating more of the prolonged fast. So I think you alluded to it, Sean, but I do three, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Three day fast every quarter. And so it's not every quarter on the nose, but I try, I'll usually have some travel built in at some point, for example, for example, when it, when we transitioned from summer to fall on the 21st of um, September, I was doing a, a trip like on the 25th. So what I did is the 25th of September, I just didn't have any food for three days. It was very simple, coincided with my travel. Um, next time, you know, I, I do something like that. I'll be traveling for around Christmas. I'll just bake in a three-day fast around that time. Mm. So that's just what I do. Now, you know, again, I've been physically active my entire life. Can I, I eat low Can I interrupt you? When, yeah. when, when you end those three day fasts, how, how do you, how do you conclude those fasts? What's the first thing you have? Yeah. You know, that's a really good point. Uh, the things that I don't try to have, because this is what people don't under, un, really understand is you're a little bit insulin resistant, um, as you, the longer you fast and people are like, wait, I thought fasting helps with insulin sensitivity. You're like, well, yeah, but your muscle tissue becomes insulin resistant. So what I don't have is carbohydrates. Um, so what I'll have is like, you know, easy to digest fats, avocado, coconut, um, some grass fed beef, you know, eggs, things like that. 
is what I'll break it with. Um, some people are very strict and they have a protocol like I'll do bone broth for an hour, then I'll do this and I'll do that. Like a, a refeeding syndrome or having a side effect of breaking your fast and complications for just three days, probably not that big of a deal. Now, if you're doing a 12 day fast, then I think you've got to have a little bit more of a structured protocol as to how you break that electrolytes and this and that, because a lot of us think food is benign, but every time we eat, we're perturbing the homeostatic balance in our body. And that's what hormones are for hormone, like insulin in the post meal window is helping to mitigate the, you know, how much volatility there is in glucose and so on. And by putting stuff into cells and all that. So eating actually I know it feels good, but eating is a is a mild stressor. And so if you go from having, you know, the homeostasis in a fasted state is, is fairly simple. Glucose is going to be flatlined. Ketones are going to be elevated. Fatty acids are going to be elevated. It's going to be pretty predictable. Then you throw in a bunch of food, there's going to be a lot of disruption of that. And so to minimize the potential volatility and the changes, um, it, I think fat and protein and salt, I think are going to be your friend. So, yeah, you don't want to like – have a big blueberry smoothie when you're breaking your fast. You'll, you'll, you're you're going to just come up and come down pretty quickly. Um, so that's what I do. And uh, But yeah, so so and then try to do the 24-hour the fast every week. I just call it Metabolic Monday. It's just simple, you know, fast on a Sunday or Monday. And it kind of helps you from just a productivity standpoint too. Kickstart your week. You don't have to worry about meal prep and all that. Um, Exercise is super important. So maintaining strength, you know, I think it's it's natural for people as they get older, they gravitate towards more cardio, more aerobics. They're kind of not doing as much weights because they feel like they don't need it. But I think you really do you do need to maintain that. Um, I lift weights with some guys that are in their late fifties and and they're strong as heck, man, and they're vibrant people. And so I think preserving strength is important uh, within reason. You don't want to like you know cause low back injuries and all that. But um, I, like I said, I mean I think a lot of people, you know, they used to be high school or collegiate athletes and they used to squat or do pull ups and this and now they just do the machines at the gym or push ups and, and nothing and the weights and that's a mistake. That's a lost opportunity in my opinion. Um, and so th those are some of the things I do, but yeah, just learning other mitigation strategies to manage stress. I think stress and, and sleep as we age, we know the quality of our sleep tends to unfortunately go down as we age. And so trying to build up that sleep, you know, investment account, so to speak, and right now, you know, in your 30s or 40s or whatever, mm. um, I think is super important. So, you know, if, you, if I look at people that, you know, were building businesses and juggling things and, and really didn't prioritize sleep in their 30s and 40s, if you look at them, you know, when they're in their 50s and 60s, like it shows. And so I think sleep is just another thing that's totally underappreciated and we now know that shortchanging your brain of sleep can precipitate um neurologic degeneration and build up of you know the 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 proteins beta amyloid and tau protein that lead to alzheimer's and memory impairment so um yeah those are some of the things that i'm working on cool very cool um yeah we're 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 knowing we're seeing more clearly how how important sleep is um that's it's fascinating. Um, what do you do for stress relief? What kind of things do you like to do to to manage your 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 stress and also for your recovery? You mentioned the sauna, um, which I love love mm. and use my infrared sauna four or five nights a week. You know, I also have um, float tanks at the ready, nice. so I you know I float probably two twice a week, and I have for years. Um, what are what are some of your stress relief techniques? Oh man, well the sensory deprivation, the float tanks are amazing. Um, I just haven't had a. I, I, there was a, a place here in Kirkland uh, in my hometown that I used to go to, and um, so that was cool. I found that to be very effective for stress mitigation. But um, just breathing, just breath work, and I do a Vipassana style on mindfulness-based meditation. So um, if people want to Google, there's all types of different meditation strategies and stress reduction strategies. You know, I found just working with your breath is the most effective and the Vipassana the technique, very simple. It's just mindfulness-based, um, no mantra. And so if people just want to Google Insight Meditation Society in your area, um, you can find that. And I think it's best 
for meditation, there's a lot of apps out there which are great and make it very convenient. But like anything, you know, if you really want to learn something, I found like an in-person, a little bit more accountability. So I went to a, a workshop several years ago and it was like 12 weeks, one night a week. It was awesome. But, you know, so we learned, you know, like a walking meditation. We learned like how to do a quick meditation and the idea that, you know, um, you know, what meditation is, you know, a lot of people think that it's like this utopian state. It's just basically being mindful, just being aware of your own thoughts and the, the sounds around you. And so, um, once I learned that it was just, you know, I can kind of do a, a slight meditation, uh, you know, when I'm talking with someone or when I'm walking or when I'm waiting, you know, um, mm -hmm. just being aware. I think that's the yeah. biggest thing because it's easy to let your emotions get the best of you and when you're unaware and you just want to react and vomit your emotions and say things that you'll regret later. And so, um, because that causes a lot of even more stress, right? So that's what I try to do. And recently, you know, in the last year working on breath work, um, I haven't, do you, you know, do you have a favorite breath work? Is there one that you like use your go-to? I've been taught by different people, um, that, that are like a, it's going to be like a hybrid of a Wim Hof type strategy, but yeah, the, the, uh, from what I understand in the research that I've done, um, you know, breath work is, is kind of like this, this period of this hyperventilation followed by retention, right? So it's just like, however you can do that. So I'll do like a, uh, my friend Josh Trent taught me this, um, warrior breath of a 21 hyperventilation breaths followed by two retention periods. And so that's been really effective, um, for, for me. Um, can you, you know, can you detail, I'm sorry to keep interrupting. No, that's you, awesome, but, man. Uh, can you detail that for me uh, to explain to everybody what, what that ventilation and, and retention do you hold on the exhale? Do you hold on the inhale? How long? I mean, could, can you map that out for us and, yeah, and, totally. and, and say the name Josh Trent again? Yeah. Josh Trent, he has a great podcast, um, wellness force. He's a good friend of mine. And, um, yeah. And so, I mean, I started out doing the uh, Herbert Benson stress response technique, I think. And um, this was just a big inhale, hold for four, exhale for four, hold for four, inhale for four, this cycle. And so I used to teach my clients, just remember four by four by four, right? And so that's just very simple. So you could just say a mantra, just, just do that. But um, what Josh Trent had taught me is this hyperventilation, which I didn't even know about, you know, um, what there was any science about this. And so basically what you're doing is you're taking a deep belly breath. So you want to sit down. You really don't want to be breathing necessarily from your chest, but just like an all out inhale and like, a, you know, forceful exhale. That's one. Same thing. So you just, you're con it's just like as much air, as much oxygen you can inhale, as much CO2 and gas as you can exhale. Really focus on your diaphragm. Um, and you know, if, if people can do 21 or 30 of those, it's amazing. And then on your last breath, what you do is you hold it. Uh, and so you take a one last big inhale and then just hold it. And then what Josh teaches is these two cycles. And so you're going to hold it for a count of four, exhale for four, inhale for four. And then once you exhale again, then you repeat the cycle quickly. Mm -hmm. So you're already kind of hyperventilated. Then when you get to the second cycle, these very intense 21 breaths, on the last one, you take a big gasp and hold it for as long as you can. You're going to feel a little bit dizzy and lightheaded. So do it on your couch the first time, you know. Um, and you now I've gotten to the point where I can hold this thing for like two minutes. And afterwards, it's like someone took the defrag in your brain and just – Whoop, emptied your trash and yeah. it, you feel really calm. And so now I do this, you know, if it's been a stressful day, I do this to start the day. And now I get into my meditation doing this. And I wish the Insight Meditation Society would have taught me this because, you know, you sit down and meditate. You already kind of don't want to do it because you want to do other stuff. And, yeah. and you're like, gosh, and you're like, when is this thing going to be over? But it's like once, if you could do some breath work before, you can just get into your meditation and you're, you're totally, you've really, hit the gas knob, gas pedal, if you will, on this parasympathetic nervous system response. So it makes meditation so much more feasible and manageable and doable and you get more out of it, I think. So yeah, that's what I do. But I haven't, you know, actually, I think, Sean, there is a Wim Hof breathing techniques seminar this weekend in Seattle, If I'm, I think on Sunday. So I might go to that. Um, but yeah, I think people can do this. I think it's, it's very achievable. Um, 
And there, what's cool about this is there's published research showing that just 10 weeks of doing this Wim Hof method training compared to individuals that didn't do the training, this was a study in the Netherlands published in the Plus One Journal of Biology. What they found is they, they, they had these people do this breath work and they injected the control group, which the group they didn't do any breath work training to the people that did the breath work training for only 10 weeks. These weren't like 10 years. And they showed that the body had a, a really profound uh, mitigation strategy to overcome this pro-inflammatory stimulant called endotoxin. And so the, the, the biology is there. And so it's really profound. So again, this could be one of those things like, you know, you're with your buddies, you're going to go have pizza and you're like, crap, I don't want to be the odd man out. You could do some breath work maybe before you eat the junk food and maybe mitigate some of that, you know, post-meal, you know, endotoxemia, for example. Interesting. Oh, yeah. that's cool. That's practical. I never thought, I never thought about that. Yeah. Like, Hey, I'm going to bring, <laughs> I'm going to eat pizza and have three beers. So I might as well do some breath work to, to, <laughs> to fight those toxins. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's very cool. That's funny, man. Um, there's a lot of different places that I that I'd like to go, but I want to be respectful for for uh, for your time. Um, so what I'd like to do with with every single one of my one question before I ask the last question is: um, Is there anything that I should have asked? Is there anything that's like really on the front of your mind that you're just like dying to share or talk about? And before we take the last question, oh man. Um... We've covered a lot of stuff. We have. Yeah, I, I guess just to emphasize, you know, so many people, like we talked about earlier, you know, so many people get caught up in their feast and fasting cycles and like, oh gosh, if I brush my teeth, is that going to break my fast? It's like, I think there's, there's bigger fish to fry and uh, like, like your, your social connections, your meaning, your purpose, like that stuff is, is orders of magnitude more important that the fasting stuff is, you know, like I practice it. I think it's amazing. We talk about it all the time. We can, you know, articulate the biochemistry, but, but it's very important that we don't lose the, the, the trees through the forest. And I, I think, you know, focus on, on uh, relationships, take time for people, um, you know, have, you know, if your work sucks and you, you don't, you don't like it, then you got to, you know, pony up and, and, uh, do something that you get fired up about. Because I think at the end of your lifespan, um, that's going to make a much bigger difference as, as opposed to like you fasted for 17.5 hours every day. You know, I, yeah. uh, I think that stuff's important too, but yeah, I think sometimes we, we lose sight of the big picture. Yeah. Well, that's kind of funny because I think you may have answered the, the last question, but I'll still ask it anyway. But before I ask the, the last question, um, where can people find you? How can they connect? Um, if you would give us your, uh, connections, um, where can people get in sure. touch? Yeah, man, it's super simple. Highintensityhealth.com and then my YouTube channels as well as High Intensity Health. But the only thing that's different is uh, my Instagram is just Mike Mutzel or Metabolic underscore Mike. So, yeah, if you all, if anyone listens to this and they're like, hey, I want to, you know, I enjoyed it, I always love to know. So you can just send me a message and I'll write back to you, something like that. So, um, yeah, that'd be awesome. Very cool. Um, so then the last question is a fill in the blank that I like to ask for all of my guests. Um, and it can be based on anything that you know. It doesn't have to be specific to any one area of nutrition or fasting or, or performance. Um, so it's uh, a fill in the blank. You can take as much. You can you can elaborate as much as you like. Um, so please fill in the blank. Everyone would benefit from knowing. Uh, how food affects gene signaling. I think that's the, the big thing. A lot of people don't make the connection between – uh, yeah, they, they get cut up on calories, you know, and they, they just say, well, but this food only has 150 calories or 200 calories or whatever it is. And they don't realize that, um, everything that we eat, including the thoughts that we think, um, influence the way that our genes are expressed. And so I think a lot of people kind of have this idea that I, I got this gene from mom or dad, it's either good or bad. I can't really do anything about it. And they don't realize you know, this whole field of epigenetics and this idea that just because you have a good or bad gene does not mean that gene is necessarily turned on or being expressed. And so um, every little day-to-day -day decision that we make ultimately influence the expression of either good genes or, or bad genes. And so we, we need to make conscious decisions. And so I, I just want my goal for people and the reason why I do what I do is I just want people to look at pictures of them now and then maybe pictures of them five years ago and be like, you know what, I I'm proud of the choices that I made, the day-to-day -day decisions about, you know, going to bed early or getting up or exercising. I don't want people to be 
disappointed in the choices that they that they made and and because regret kind of sucks you know and um so yeah that, i think that's just I, I just want people to realize that that every little thing that you do um it, you know is in a is is it a deposit or a withdrawal into your kind of health bank account and so um yeah to, to don't don't get bought into the food industry stuff and just say well it's low calorie so it must be okay it's 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 much more than that and most foods with labels are, are processed at some level um and the messages that they they send to your genes are usually not the best it's not in all cases that they're bad but you know so uh, eat real food and, and be mindful of what you think because what you think influences your genes and and that's uh that's super important Awesome. Well said. Wow. What a great, Thanks, what a great answer. That was, that was excellent. <laughs> cool. Um, Mike Mutzel, thank you so much for being our guest today on the optimal performance podcast. My pleasure. Appreciate you all tuning in.